morning again. Would you turn your Bibles to Psalm 40? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to follow along on one of the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can find that on page 400. And uh, as you're turning there, before I get going, um, I, I had uh, had this thought as I was sharing uh, the email that uh, many of you should have received if you're on the pastor's email list. If you have your email address, uh, as I was preparing some thoughts about the Planned Parenthood videos, I had this thought. I didn't uh, think to share it with the staff and get it in the announcements, but I'd like us to focus this Tuesday's Kingdom Prayer meeting on praying for the sanctity of human life. I'd like us to pray for the unborn. I'd like us to pray for Lighthouse, a close partner. I'd like us to pray for Planned Parenthood, that the grace of God would pour out upon this organization. I'd like us to pray for ourselves as a church and uh, asking God, uh, what would you have us do? Uh, not just in um, point-in-time efforts in helping Lighthouse. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that we don't just say to women, don't abort your babies. But we come alongside teen girls who wouldn't otherwise have a voice in their lives, wouldn't have support, wouldn't have somewhere to go to ask questions, to get counseling. Um, it's, it's a good thing that we don't just say to women when we don't even know that their boyfriends are abusive and threatening them, that they have to get this abortion. It's a good thing that we uh, want to do something. We need to ask God, how much more can we do? So uh, Kingdom Prayer in Glenrock and in New Milford uh, moved two years ago, 10. Um, join us. If you can't join us for any reason, logistically pray from your homes. Let's uh, unite in uh, intercession. Uh, Psalm 40. We're in the middle of our summer sermon series on the book of Psalms. And it's been said that scripture, most of scripture speaks to us while the psalms speak for us. These songs wrestle with unairbrushed reality. These inspired biblical songs give us the vocabulary with which to sing a duet with God, which interacts with the sermon subtitle. Today's psalm starts with thanksgiving, and it ends with lament. It starts with David celebrating how God has delivered him from some situation. We don't know what the nature of it is. And it ends with him asking for more help once again. And for that reason, uh, some scholars insist that this must have been two different psalms mashed together, that the, the origin must have been separate. But my gut says, well, what in the world is out of the ordinary <laughs> with moving from a moment of thanksgiving in life into a moment of lament. I, I wouldn't be surprised if David then went back to Thanksgiving and ended up with lament again. That's real life, isn't it? That, that's walking through the, the pain and, uh, of circumstances that uh, don't usually all line up the way we'd like them to line up. The, the narratives of Disney fairy tales invite us to escape into fantasy and fiction. But the real stuff of biblical psalms invite us to dive more deeply into life, reality, as it is. Psalm 40 might sound familiar to some of you. Um, if it does, my guess is it's just the first three verses that have been the um, inspiration of lots of worship songs <clears throat> and lots of uh, songs we might not call worship, 
but have been inspired like U2's 40. Um, I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? <clears throat> the, the crowd favorite as the band leaves the stage one by one. How long to sing the song? In other words, how long before you come back and give us the encore that we're looking for? Um, inspired, Bono will write and say, by Psalm 40. The only little wrinkle is that that crowd favorite line, how long to sing the song, is the only line in that song is not in Psalm 40. But let's go to the real thing. Psalm 40, listen carefully. These are God's words. For the director of music of David, a psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for inspired poetry from years and years ago that still speak to our hearts today. And sometimes they speak for our hearts. Use David's song. Use his struggle. Use his celebration of what you've done in his life as a fresh word to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we're going to focus on this royal grace story. That's the phrase we use here at Grace Redeemer Church to describe personal life testimonies. Two years ago, we rolled out the first set of grace stories in June. And, and these are personal, unique accounts of God's power poured out through the gospel of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit in individual lives to bring about life change. It's a person who gets up here and says, I'm just like you, in struggling, in my sin, in dealing with life circumstances, but this is how God has worked in my life, and I need to 
proclaim His goodness. That's, that's what David uh, starts talking about in um, verses 9 and, and 10. I proclaim righteousness. I do not hide uh, your love and your truth from the great assembly. And uh, since then, we've had three more sets of grace stories, and we're planning another set for September. Here's what I want you to realize is so unique about grace stories. Not that we have a lock on them in the church world, but they're unique compared to a lot of other things that you'll experience out in the world. Uh, over the years, I've been to a number of ministry conferences, and they're helpful, but uh, I always get the sense that um, the, the, the formula goes like this. A large church hosts it, and the large church's senior pastor, as well as other pastors of large churches, get up on the stage, um, and the place is packed because people have come from all over the country, sometimes international locations. And, and the sense I get is, um, do these th four things, the message is, and you too can be a pastoral superstar like us. I don't want to impugn motives. I'm not suggesting at all that that's why they do that. There's very helpful equipping of church leaders, but sometimes I get the sense that this is a parade of the best that humanity has to offer, and um, people are so hungry for tips as to how to improve life. It's not unlike some TED Talks, 18 minutes to share how you turn this crazy idea into an $18 billion net worth, you know, or, or conference plenary speakers or, or medical society papers. Here's how my lab discovered the genetic mutation that causes this disease, and now we've opened up a whole new vista of research. Good stuff, helpful things, common grace. God has enabled people to think up and discover to help us um, heal and, and care for people, for example. And, and there's a place for all of that, but grace stories are very different and for the different reasons are that much more profitable and encouraging to the church, to normal people like us. It, because grace stories aren't stories that celebrate the wisdom and ingenuity and skills of mature Christians who have figured things out. And they're up here parading, in a sense, uh, their successes. Our marriage is a, a fairy tale story now because um, I finally figured out the keys to the Christian life. I've done the seven steps to a healthy relationship, and you too can have the same. It's not a great story. It's not accessible to people. Um, I used to be tempted by internet pornography, but after I memorized 17 books of Scripture, I no longer have even the hint of desire. It's not a great story. It's not real life. That's airbrushed, embellished. Um, it's a facade. David um, is telling a grace story, and like every grace story, the grace story doesn't celebrate the, the teller of the story. The grace story uh, celebrates the giver of the grace, his resurrection power that's applied to broken people like all of us, which should then lead us in response to worship the giver, not the receiver of grace. Verses 1 through 3 are a royal grace story. David's giving testimony. He's not bragging. In fact, if you look at this, his language, I waited patiently, passive. And he turned 
He heard. He lifted me out. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song and a hymn of praise in my mouth. Unspoken. I didn't do nothing. (laughs) I just waited. God did it all. That's a great story because we can relate to that too, and that's encouraging, right? It's not, wow, that guy is so genius. I'll never be like him. That, that woman is so godly, I, you know, how could I ever approximate? No. She's broken. He's broken. God's grace is, is also available to me. That same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead was at work in these people, and I can access that by faith as well. Praise God. After he celebrates God's deliverance from whatever the circumstances were, He makes this observation in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. And you might think after a three-verse grace story made into all kinds of songs, this is Captain Obvious just telling us something that didn't really need to be said. Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord. Of course, David. But here's my educated guess that there's a little bit more going on here. I think there's a good chance that David's slimy pit, the mud and mire he was stuck in, was of his own doing, at least partly so. He's basically saying, verses 1 through 3, thank you for saving me, God. Verse 4, anyone who trusts the Lord instead of false gods or idols is truly blessed. I think this has to do more with his struggle with sin, with the the snares and temptations of the evil one, than the more perhaps obvious or or, um, historically prevalent occasions of people after David, armies after him, swords and spears and arrows aimed his way. Anyone who trusts the Lord instead of false gods is truly blessed, David would say. David is saying, what's an idol? An idol is someone or something about which we think. Sometimes we say, I must have that in order to be someone, in order to be significant, in order to be happy, in order to to live a fulfilling life, in order for me to make it to the next day. Whatever it is, whoever it is, that's an idol. It's become a a substitute for God. It's become a source of your worth. Uh, Peer approval, achievement, pleasure, status, fame and fortune, security, every one of those dynamics is addictive by nature. Listen to author and counselor Ed Welch. He says, addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. Will we worship ourselves and our own desires, or will we worship God? Can I get that quote, guys? Um, The Ed Welch quote, please. Um, Let me read it again. Addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. Will we worship ourselves and our own desires, or will we worship the true God? And then he makes this observation. He says, go to an AA meeting and listen to the language. Chances are you might think that people were having affairs. They are talking about something they loved. Most of you are thinking, okay, but I'm not an addict. There's nothing out of control in my life. I don't have a problem, but if you... If you're honest with yourself, and it doesn't take much thinking, aren't there habitual problems, habitual behaviors, some unhealthy, most 
sinful that you can't get rid of, ways you sin over and over and over, ask someone close to you. Ask your parent. If you're married, ask a spouse. Ask a close friend who really knows you, how annoying you tend to be, (laughs) how you tend to lapse into this pattern, you know, you're so prideful, you're so insecure, whatever it may be. These are patterns. These are on the continuum of addiction. It might be in control. You might have more socially acceptable um, stuck patterns that you can't get out of, but they're not that different from what we would classically call addictions because at root, whatever your struggle is, however out of control or socially acceptable it may be, it's a disorder of worship. You're putting your worship in something or someone that can't return what you need it to give you. The only question is how well you manage that disorder of worship. The question is how unfaithful you act towards God when you look to something or someone to bring you joy and satisfaction. You know, every Wednesday night, right here, 7.30, Celebrate Recovery meets. Um, Anyone is invited. Come early for dinner. It's put out at 7 o'clock. It's not a collection of messed up, especially messed up people. You've heard me say that over and over if you've been around GRC. It is a gathering of courageous, and yes, sometimes spiritually at the end of their ropes, men and women who have realized by God's grace that what they've chased after is destroying them. They're not more sinful than anyone who has never gone to a CR meeting. In a very positive light, they're less, they tend to be less deceived than anyone who's never gone to a CR meeting about their own hearts about the power of sin, about the allure and addictive nature of sin, how easily it is in my life, in their life, to become ensnared and to head down that road to destruction. They are able to say, celebrate recovery attendees, with David, blessed is anyone who trusts in God instead of false idols, like alcohol, like internet pornography like career, like the approval of other people that makes me drunk when I get it and desperate and despondent when I can't. Every Wednesday night right here, 7.30, grace stories are being told. If you're starting to realize that truth at any level about yourself, about your pit, your slimy pit, the mud and mire in which you're stuck, then your personal grace story is unfolding. Chapter 1, at the least, is being written. And if you look by faith to Christ, I know how your grace story will end. Psalm 40 will keep unfolding some details at least. Let's keep going. Secondly, doing God's will. Can you think of especially memorable or meaningful birthday or Christmas presents you've received in the past? I'm convinced as, as we get older that the, the memorableness, the, the favorite status of gifts has less and less to do with the fancy and the price tags, and it has a lot more to do with the meaningful, right? The, the intentional, the caring, thoughtful, relationship-rooted gift, something that took someone um, time to think up creatively, 
a thoughtful gift, maybe something they made themselves with, with great labor. Some of you like to um, sew or do woodcrafting or, you know, um, that's, those are meaningful gifts, aren't they? Sometimes, in contrast, you get a Christmas present and you get the sense, you put two and two together, that you were a list on a long piece of paper with check boxes and people were going down the mall and saying, that'll do, that'll do, that'll do, and I'm done Christmas shopping. Sometimes you get an edible arrangement <laughs> and you know it's because that person got surprised by your gift and next thing you know, they're online trying to avoid social embarrassment and uh, there's a gift back. By the way, just to clear up any mixed signals, if any of you really wanted to buy me an Apple Watch, <laughs> stainless steel, 42 millimeters, uh, I would not think that to be cold and calculated. What's, I would think, you are so thoughtful, you care. How would you even know that? You know, that's what I would think, um, just, just for the record. H- how do you thank the Lord when He rescues you from your slimy pit? the mud and mire, whatever that may be, I don't think you need help thinking about what that would be. David knows, verses 6 through 8, you don't thank God with external gestures, sacrifice. You thank God with an offering of the heart and will in full surrender, in obedience and worship before His throne. David, in a sense, is is saying, God, I know you don't want, you don't need a token gift. I know you want all of me. Why is that? It's not because God says, ooh, now you owe me. (laughs) I rescued you from that situation, and now, you know, what are you going to do for me in return? God doesn't need anything from us. He's all-sufficient. He's not lacking. He's not hoping to, you know, reach some unreached people group Um, and says, I can't do it until a few Christians rise up and a few Christians give and people start praying. God's hands are not bound behind His back helplessly. But instead, God is saying, I saved you because I want you to experience life as I have always longed for you to know. And I want all of you to follow me, to trust me, to obey me, to recognize that I have all-surpassing worth, therefore to worship me, because I long for you to experience that much more fullness. Will you? I want you to. You see the difference between a a tyrant who says, now I've got you. You owe me. I've, I've sowed seeds of favors, and now it's time for me to harvest them back. And a perfect father who says, everything I want for you, my child is only provided in this intimate relationship of faith with me. Come back for more. The part of verse 6 about pierced ears is difficult. Um, But there's another way to translate that, and the footnotes usually suggest this. I think it helps clear it up. So let me read verse 6 in an alternate way. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Not pierced ears, but open ears. Open ears to hear what? To hear the voice of our Father. Wooing us. Inviting us. A child who listens, whose ears are open to the voice of his or her parents, is a child who follows and trusts and obeys, right? 
listen to me. You never listen. That's what we say to kids. Listen to me, right? Because if they do listen, we know good things happen. Listen to how these two ideas go together when the prophet Samuel rebukes the first king of Israel, who is Saul. He, uh, Samuel replies, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. I wonder if you're like David, able to say where you are in your spiritual journey with him, God has done this work of saving, of rescuing me. Or are you curious about what all this entails? Are you curious about the God of the Bible? Are, are you wondering if this Jesus of history has some significant way, a role to play in your life? Or are you already hungry to know Him more fully and you just need nourishment? You need satisfaction. Whichever description describes you, Psalm 40 can guide your response uh, in, in thankfulness or in seeking after God, not with verse 6, but with verse 7, not with sacrifices and offerings, but with an honest statement to God, here I am, I have come to do your will. Not with externals, verse 6, but with the giving of self and the surrender of worship and obedience, verse 7. What do sacrifices and offerings look like? We don't bring animals into the sanctuary and cut them in pieces and burn them up. What do we tend, maybe this is a helpful question, what do we tend to assume satisfies God? Checks off that religious box, you know? Got a present for Him, moving on. I think we could start with going to church on Sunday, checks off that religious obligation, just like it checked off that Christmas gift obligation. We, we could go on to say, you know, I, I gave some money, I, I, I tithe, I, um, I help out with the mercy fund and give to missions, I, I volunteer on Sunday mornings and care for the little ones and teach Sunday school. I, I avoid the big sins because I have some moral grounding. I don't sleep around, I don't get roaring drunk, I don't do drugs, I don't cheat, I'm a good neighbor, Right? Sacrifices and offerings. Check. God, why, why aren't you pleased? Aren't I doing the right things? You know what God thinks of merely external gifts that check off a box? He tells us in Isaiah chapter 1. He says this, starting in verse 11. The multitude... Of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. And a little bit more. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Eww. It isn't at all that God says, eh, no thanks, <laughs> I don't need that. In very great contrast, God says, gag me. 
that disgusts me. I detest it. I hate it. It's a burden. Wow. Do you ever think that when you've shown up in church and plunked something in the offering and volunteered during Sunday school, that God would say, ah, because it's just verse 6. It's not verse 7. It's just this checking off obligation. Yeah, it's nice. It's better than dealing drugs, you know, on the street. But the heart attitude with which you bring it, and perhaps even the lack of heart attitude, you know, I'm just going through the motion. Look, I'm not saying you can't do things when you don't feel like it. We have to. That, that, you know, that's self-discipline, right? You, you, you exercise. You go for a run, not because you delight in gasping for oxygen, because you know it's good for you. You know, don't, don't, don't hear me wrong and say, well, I'm, I'm going to stop volunteering until my heart is right. No. Keep volunteering. <laughs> Keep giving, keep showing up on Sunday, and, and just realize in the moment, I need to change. You know, don't stop giving Christmas gifts to your loved ones, right? But, but start examining, well, why, why do I do this? Am I just trying to check off a box, or, or am, I, am I actually spending time loving the person? Am I oriented towards God? Do I long for more of Him, not just some sense of guilt you know, satisfaction, that I don't have to feel bad because I came to church and now I can do whatever I want. The problem is none of us can do this well enough. The answer comes from the New Testament book of Hebrews, which quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and applies it straight to Jesus. Hebrews 10 is emphasizing that the sacrifices of the Old Testament could never make perfect those who draw near to worship. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, a quote. The, the New Testament inspired author of Hebrews is saying this is about Jesus, or at least Jesus fulfills this verse that had to do with David first. So what Hebrews says is, first, Jesus acknowledged that these sacrifices were not enough. They were insufficient. And then he demonstrated his perfect willingness to do the will of the Father. Here I am. He came into the world. Okay? A sacrificial animal takes the place of the worshiper. Sinful worshiper approaching a holy God doesn't mix. The animal dies because that's what the sinful worshiper deserves to do. And as a substitute, then temporarily at least, the worshiper can come close to God in intimacy. Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross accomplished once and for all time what no animal could ever accomplish, the cleansing of people's sin, the washing away. Why? Because Jesus was fully human, not just a bull taking the place of a human all of humanity who trusts in Him. And, just as importantly, because Jesus surrendered fully to the Father's will. Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, here I am, and He fully earned the Father's approval, and therefore, His was the perfect sacrifice. How do you respond to God's grace? Whether you've barely tasted it, or whether, like David, you've already feasted on it. Not by doing more, sacrifices and offerings, external obligations, but by trusting in the one who has done 
everything that there is to be done. Jesus, the ultimate son of David who fulfilled Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Here I am. I have come to do your will. And he did it perfectly. Lastly, as we close, I am, but you are. There's a key here. I mentioned that the psalm has two parts, starting with thanksgiving, transitioning in verse 11 into lament. And the transition points out something important about grace stories. They're never done, at least not before Jesus comes back. They're they're never wrapped up, certainly not with a bow, neatly tied up in a little package. Don't be fooled into thinking that anyone has arrived spiritually, that anyone is beyond temptation of any sin. It's a lie. None of us is. Don't be fooled into thinking that God protects good Christians from trouble or suffering, that if you're faith-filled, that you can kind of coast and not worry about bad things happening to you. Even in lament, second half of Psalm 40, God's at work writing the next chapter of your particular grace story. In verse 12, David is praying about his sins which have overtaken him. This verse is what fueled my thinking that his slimy pit was at least partly of his own doing. He's overwhelmed by these sins, and and perhaps the same sins led to the slimy pit before. Verse 14 mentions those who seek to take my life. I don't think this is a sudden shift from 12 to 14 of of David thinking um, now about the battleground, archers aiming arrows at him. I think he's saying, sin is weighing me down, and lots of people want to see sin destroy me. They want to see me fall, so save me, Lord. You see what I'm saying? I I think they're one and the same topic. Sin is going to kill me unless I do something about it, and my enemies would love to see that happen. Don't let it, God. Save me again. Do you take your sin seriously enough to realize that it can kill you? Do you realize there's a spiritual battle for your soul? And Satan, at the least, is rooting for you to fail to fall flat on your face, to dishonor the name of Jesus if you call yourself a Christian, to show that you're no different than the rest of those people. You were so disdain self-righteously. That's Satan's ultimate victory because <laughs> then you're worthless. At least you think you are because you thought you could puff yourself up. Do you have that serious sense of your own sin? Do you have that serious desperate longing for God to rescue you from the lust that rules your heart, from the Bergen County air that you breathe that leeches a slow and steady envy and material lust into your bloodstream. Every part of the country, every part of the world has its unique sinful air. We're not special, but we have a particular shape, I think. Do you realize what Bergen County does to you, spiritually speaking? Do you want rescue from the idol of leisure, recognizing that that will be a cancer on your soul, that the idol that you work hard and you deserve to spend every weekend doing whatever you want to do and every vacation, living it up while you ignore relationships that God calls you to invest in and you ignore needy people that God calls you to pour yourself into while you ignore lost people that God would want you to share the gospel with? Verse 16, in closing, 
is this confident, David trusting in God kind of statement. But David's wise. He doesn't let that get a hold of his mind. He goes right back to verse 17, his daily battle against sin. Yet I am poor and needy. Do not think of yourself, Paul would say, more highly than you are. Don't, don't spend too much time rejoicing um, lest your enemy rise up from the ashes and <laughs> slay you. Don't think that only other people have a sin problem when you're just fine. This is the 10,000-foot picture of the end of Psalm 40. David's talking about my sins, verses 11 to 12. He's pointing to my enemies, verses 13 to 15. And then in verses 16 and 17, he's saying, my help, you are my help. I am, he ends with, but you are. If you leave with anything, I want you to leave with that growing in Christ paradigm. You need this contrast. I am, but you are. And then you fill in the blanks with biblical stuff. I am sinful, but you are holy. How is that possible? I am greedy, but you are generous. I am needy, but you pour out grace and mercy. I am poor in sin, but you are rich in gospel grace. That's the heart of every grace story. And everything that God is finds its fulfillment, is most fully revealed in the salvation by sacrifice that only Jesus accomplished and offers to you by faith. Let that be the foundation of your grace story as God tells it through your life. Let's pray. Lord, I am just a man, but you are almighty God, creator, rescuer, savior, deliverer. I am a sinner. You are holy. I am in need. You are the one that has everything I need. Poured out upon us through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.